This is Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Genesis 3:28 There is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male or female for you all are one in Christ Jesus Ephesians 4:14 4, through 22 For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the flesh dividing the wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself a new man in place of of the, of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we're both, uh, for, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you are also built together into a dwelling place uh, for God by the Spirit. I was raised Southern Baptist, what I believed is what others practiced. A white church planted in red dirt, a Midwestern boy with a tucked in shirt. I converted not just to Christianity, but to an ideology, an identity, an idea, a theology. I was taught Jesus died for the sins of humanity, that his cross would demolish all hints of inequality, that he cried out for unity in his last prayer at Gethsemane, and that this infallible book would bring all believers to harmony. But across the street with the Nazarenes and two blocks down with the Catholics and a mile north a church called Community and east of that were more Baptists. I had this uncallous thought that if we couldn't have fellowship with those in other fellowships who were taught a little different then we could at least befriend the Baptists who were baptized for the same reasons and under the same creeds and because of the same tree. But these Baptists weren't like the Baptists in our baptistry washing away their sin. For though these Baptists shared our beliefs they did not share our skin. We are born into a separated Sunday morning. The body of Christ is segregated past all warnings. The church looks more like a court and less like a courting. Trading the unified bride for stereotype judgments. The juries are sorting. The blacks from the white, the left from the right, the women from men, the sinners from sin, the traditional from the charismatic, the liberal from the dogmatic, the denomination from the non-denom, inevitably separating us from God. How did we get so far off from the truth that now a poor, dark-skinned, unattractive Israeli Jew would have better luck dying for our sins than fitting in on our pews. Are our views and traditions worth destroying the body of Christ's eternal commission? Baptizing all nations in the damnation of our denominations fraternal omission? 
we are omitting the ominous call to depart from the social roles and charts our stratified cultures impart. But it's time our churches look less like the demographic of a country club and more like that of a Walmart. Before the cross, all races and nations fit into two percentiles, God's chosen Israel and the unchosen Gentiles. Those who could enter in the temple and those exiled by its walls. But after the cross, the hostility built into that divider did fall. And now, a new people are born, a holy nation set apart from all who'd lived before. Within this borderless country, there are no Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, rich nor poor, Democrat nor Republican, Iraqi nor American, holy nor beautiful, polished nor tainted, Catholic nor Baptist, red nor brown, black nor white. There is only Christ, the miracle of a true life, the participants in a new creation. The old has gone, the new has saved us. We are the third race, neither Gentile or Jew. From death to life, we have all passed through. Our skin has not been removed, but our eyes have been renewed. Now you can see me and I can see you as more than a brand title, sinner or color, but as a father, mother, sister or brother. The church is universal, the university of diversity. She can teach the world how to live in harmony. The church is local, the locale for unity, unifying heaven and earth. We are the contrasted community. Our allegiance is not to a country, color or creed, but to the androgynous family born on that Roman tree. We will no longer be separated by our prejudices and bigotry, nor be segregated from those who think or look differently, but will embrace our body's beautiful diversity and will raise our voices for peace as God's extraordinary symphony. Watching that, um, as I was preparing, I was kind of looking for some kind of visual aid to kind of help us kick it in the right, right gear as we start. Um, I wanted to bring a few resources, but I, I, did, I left out of the house this morning pretty quick. Uh, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to post them to our uh, website so you can go to this sermon um, probably by about Tuesday this week or so. And uh, I'm going to have just a list of resources uh, that helped me, uh, that informed me, uh, because a big, a big question is, why is it necessary for us to do this? Right? Think about this, how, how, we're, how our church family is shaped. We typically take a book of, of the Bible at a time, and we just really just walk through that, walk through that book verse by verse by verse. Uh, that helps shape um, our, our theology. It helps shape our understanding of who Jesus is and how to live uh, to glorify the name of, of Jesus. Um, so I would say that the entirety of the Bible uh, speaks, uh, if, if you are, are informed across the whole spectrum of Scripture, um, that it will address and inform our hearts on matters of race, uh, of segregation. And, and at the same time, history will prove that we have to stop every now and then and just put a laser focus on this issue. Um, and I'll give, you, I'll give you a couple examples because this even happens 
in the church. You know, I'm speaking about brothers and sisters who've uh, been bought by the blood of Jesus and have now been brought into the family of God. That's who I'm speaking of right now when I say that um, we need to be reminded of this issue. Uh, one, I'm going to go from recent to, to, to historical, just some, some instances where, where I believe it's necessary why we need to be reminded of this. Um, it was back in 2010. Um, I had just got back from Haiti, spent two weeks there, um, just loving some of the world's poorest communities in the world, uh, being, uh, being able to kind of see on, front, on the front lines what poverty looks like in a third world, third world setting like that. Um, and man, God broke my heart in a, in, in a bunch of places when it, when it came to that, when it came to poverty and it came to race and it came to um, inequality and all of those things. Um, and when I got back, I was talking to um, a, a deacon in our church. Uh, this is a man who, who, who has been uh, examined and considered uh, as someone who would represent uh, the leadership of our church at the time. And, and one of the things that he told me was, well, when I was telling the story about Haiti, like, here's, what ha- here's all the things that we did, here's all the things we experienced. Um, his response to me was the most heartbreaking, life-changing response that I've ever heard in my life. He said, well, you know what? You should have came with me. At least there were people where I went with the same color skin. Shame on him and shame on any of you if you have that kind of heart. That a man professing Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior and giving his life to serve those who've yet to name the name of Jesus has that much racism in his heart. And my heart broke in that moment. I'm just like, I cannot believe that I just heard this from a man who I respected, I, had, I had held it a high regard. He just kind of dropped a few notches on my list. And, and, and to this day, as you can hear me say, I'm still trying to get over that. And, and, and in that moment, I knew that it's, we have to do something more than just be passive about justice. And, and we have to be actively speaking and working toward justice. And so that's a recent event why I feel like the church needs to be reminded of this issue of segregation, of race, of equality, of equity, of justice. Um, I've got a copy of it here, and I may or may not reference it today. But this is, uh, this is a verbatim copy of the public statement directed to Martin Luther King, Jr., by eight Alabama clergymen. These different pastors, bishops from different churches. Um, I, I won't call their names, but I will say that uh, they, come, they come from Catholic, the Catholic Church, they come from the Methodist Church, they come from the Episcopal Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Baptist Church, and so it's not just any one tribe of believers. But eight different clergymen wrote a letter while Martin Luther King Jr. sitting in jail fighting for justice. They wrote him a letter, and to just maybe sum it up a little bit, said, hey, quit making such a ruckus about this. We've got laws in place. We've got judicial practices in place that will inevitably fix this issue, and you just need to sit down, be quiet, and wait. Wait for that process to happen. This was 95 or so years since slavery was abolished. They were still fighting for justice. And men of God, leaders of the church, addressed him and said, you need to wait. Sit down, 
have patience. And, and, and this is the letter that they wrote to him and his response, which please, I, I will attach this to our, our website after today so that you can all read his response. I'm talking about life-altering things that he, he addressed in such a God-honoring way, yet in such a we're fighting for justice. And, and you, you may or may not have heard many Martin Luther King quotes, but he said, you know why I'm in Birmingham? In this letter, he says, you, he's writing back to him. He says, you know why I'm here? Because injustice is here. And wherever, wherever injustice is, is where I'm going to go. That's where I'm, I'm going to root out injustice. And man, that's powerful. Like, okay, I, I'm encouraged by that, right? And then the, the second thing he said was, you know, an, an injustice anywhere is a, is a threat to justice everywhere. So if it's happening, if an injustice is happening here in Birmingham, Alabama, then eventually it's going to ripple out into the entire world. And he said it needs to stop here. We come from a Southern Baptist background. So now I'm going a little bit further in history. Uh, and some of you may or may not know the history of why it has to be Southern Baptist. But it started out, thankfully, uh, uh, we've come a long way, right? But, but it started out with, you know what? We're going to pick up our toys and go over here because you, you're telling us that as pastors and missionaries, we can't have slaves. And, and they felt like they had a right to own slaves, and so they, they picked up their toys and walked away and said, we're leaving the Baptist family and we're going to create our own denomination uh, because this is what we want. So our own history of where we come from, of, of, of our, uh, our, our convention and our, our background and where our family comes from, it started in a really dark place. And we've progressed along the way, so don't hear me that that's where we're at today, but, but understand that there's still a lot of work to do. And I'm going to start our text. I'm going to go back even further in history, all the way to when the, when the church was born. And you saw some of that in Galatians chapter 2. If, if you're still there uh, in your scripture, look at verse 11 with me. It says, but, but when Cephas, this is Peter, uh, you remember his name was Cephas, and Jesus said, I'm going to call you Peter, uh, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, okay, Barnabas is the son of encouragement. He's the guy. He's the one who always gave people a chance when no one else would. He said, Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth, of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see this tension that's happening here. The tragedy is, what we need to do is we need to recognize that there is disunity in the church. We need to recognize that. Okay, this is a 12-step program for us, and the first step is recognizing that there's a problem, and there is a problem. There's disunity in the church. The tragedy is that Paul should have never had to write this letter. He should have never had to write this note in this letter to, to Peter and to the church because the church at Antioch was the most beautifully diverse church in its, in its time and at that, at that day. And how, here's the deal. If Antioch, being the, a beautifully diverse church like it is, has this kind of tension, think about today where today churches 
in our country are 90% monocultural. 90%. Meaning that there's only one group of people in the church. Here's the deal. Look around for me for a second. Just look around, people on your side behind you. We're in that 90%. We make up that 90% of being monocultural. We need to recognize that there's disunity in the church when it comes to different cultures. And so the cry from, that Martin Luther King spoke out for, for years as he, as he uh, pushed, the, the, pushed the, the darkness back was that there would be integration, right? That, that my black child can go to school with your white child. That, that my black son can sit in a, in a, in a, in a booth at a restaurant with, with your white son. Like he was looking for some kind of unity. But what a great mistake it would be to fill a room, right? Just to fill a room with a lot of people from a bunch of different cultures and not fill our hearts. With. So, so we're not, I'm not asking for you guys to consider integration and, and can we get a little bit more diverse. I'm asking you to look into your hearts and just how diverse are you there? Paul's having to confront this issue because it's easy to be integrated on the surface and segregated in our hearts. So, that, so again, hear me. I want you to consider what's in your heart about this. I'm not asking, hey, go find a bunch of different uh, from friends from different uh, circles and different cultures and just be around them. I'm asking you in your heart to, to root out and to weed out any segregation that may be there. And here's, here's the deal. Um, just a, a little glimpse at me. I, I was not raised um, this way. This, this way, I, I was raised uh, very much in a, in, a, in a culture where it was totally okay to use derogatory terms to describe black people. It was totally okay um, to uh, openly admit that we're not going to hang around those people. We're not going to go to the places those people hang. That's their group and this is our group. This was a culture that I was raised in. And, and so it would be foolish of you to believe that tomorrow morning you can just wake up and decide that I'm not going to be that way anymore. It took the gospel taking root in my heart, and I still wrestle with it today. I still fight with it today. And so anytime someone wants to fix their face to tell me racism doesn't exist anymore, I'm here to tell you I'm a living testimony. I fight it every day. I wrestle with it every single day. So yes, it does. It absolutely does. And so if the gospel doesn't move us past this idea of integration, where we're just kind of going to all coexist together, but not really invite one another into our homes and in our communities, like if the gospel doesn't put up, push us to that place where I have someone who I run to when things are broken in my life, or someone that I entrust my kids to, then we're no different than Peter here at Antioch. We're no different if we don't let the gospel have that kind of effect in our life. And we should be rebuked. We should take this letter and take this note from Paul and, and let, it, let it discipline us. And I love the church, and I love you too much to be passive about this, to be passive about our purpose. Like, we're gospel people. And so we, we come with a different story. We have a different 
viewpoint, a worldview of life. And the church is, it is God's declaration to the world. We are God's great declaration to the world that He is forming a family for Himself from all peoples for all eternity. And so that's our call. That's the declaration that we walk around with. So for Community Church, we exist to make much of God in the neighborhoods and to the nations. All peoples. So that all peoples could be in the family of God for eternity. And, and he says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. That's important because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing circumcision party. Just a side note, racism is nothing but fear cloaked in hate. That's what racism is. I'm afraid, stay away. I don't know how to engage this. I was taught to be afraid. Stay away. Boundaries. That's all that racism is. And so same thing here with Peter. We see him. He feared what his peers might think. And so he pulled back and said, we need, we need boundaries. Now, you need to know that there's a pattern here, a pattern that we have to follow at this point in time. And even today in the church, if you've gone through our, our, our new members class, we kind of explain to you how we confront sin. And we do it just the way instructions were given to us by, by Jesus. And so we see here that you're confronted, first of all, privately. You're supposed to, a one-on-one um, situation. Matthew 18, Jesus would say, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, put him on blast. If he doesn't listen to you if, you, if you engage that privately and he doesn't respond to that, then it's time to bring some more people in and eventually we're going to go public with it. And so it's implied here that Paul has already addressed Peter privately about this issue. It was the custom of that day and it was instructions given by Jesus to do it this way. And so the fact that it's now made it in the inspired divine word of God, it, it implies that that. Paul has already addressed this one-on-one with Peter, and he's not getting his act together, so now he puts him on blast. And so there's a significant point that we've got we to make here. In the book of Acts, we see the birth of the church. Starting in Acts chapter 2, you see the Spirit start moving, and the church is being born. And almost immediately, as people are going to speak this good news, fierce persecution breaks out. And they scatter in what we would call now the dispersion. They were dispersed among all the regions because so much persecution was happening right there in Jerusalem. And so one of the places that they fled to was Antioch. Antioch was this huge melting pot of a city. It was a, it was a significant um, geographical, economical, and cultural crossroads at the time in the Roman Empire. And there are all types of people here. There are Africans, there are Palestinians, there are Jews. And then in Acts chapter 11, we see, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Hellenists are, are Greeks who, who know how to, they, they, Greek, they're Greek-speaking Jews, so they're Jews who know how to speak Greek. Comes to them and, and preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And you jump down to verse 26 and it says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. 
See what happens here? That the gospel is preached. The gospel is proclaimed. And suddenly this beautiful, diverse church is born. That believers from all over were, were, were knit together. And they have all these different ethnicities and races. And they're all worshiping together. And they're all doing life together. And so the people on the outside, they're, they're just blown away by this. They're looking and they're like, oh, well, this is, I mean, I can't even come up with a, with a name for this. Like they're not the... Not, they, they can't be defined any longer as the Jews. They can't be defined any longer as the Gentiles. They can't be defined as the Africans or the rich or the poor anymore because they're kind of all doing life together. They're, they're in community with one another, and they're not separated and segregated anymore. And so the, the only thing that they could come up with was Christianoi. And that, that literally means the people of Christ, the folks of Christ. So that's the only thing we can use to describe this group of people. We can't segregate them any longer. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through the, through the faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus. No more designating us by race or culture or education or socioeconomic class. None of that supersedes the class of Christ, the culture of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul retains the idea that there's a difference, right? There's Jews, there's Greeks, there's slaves, and there's free, there's women, there are men. And so he retains that idea and he says, but they're all one in Christ. We are all one in Christ. Hard to identify as a, as a group of people. So, I believe that the hope of the world is the church. I believe that God has made one plan, and the plan is for the church to go and carry the hope of the gospel to the world. And so how can we be an example for our community, for this community right here? How can we be an example and realize unity in the midst of our diversity? Let me just share with you. I shared this with you uh, last time we were talking on the topic of race. Um, and I don't have all the, all the numbers with me, but I will say this. that The last time I checked, Sulphur, Louisiana, uh, as, a, as a city, is 92% white. So, I mean, you could just see, even in our city, we're not very diverse. Uh, we have a, a few minorities, but we're the, 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 the white culture the, the, is the predominant culture in Sulphur, Louisiana. Um, but they're not all in one class. We have different socioeconomic classes all across the board. How beautiful would it be that we couldn't no longer distinguish between one class or the next, or one culture and the next, or one neighborhood to the next. You get that? Like, I can name a neighborhood right now, and you'll know exactly where it's at and what kind of people live in it. How cool would it be if you couldn't do that anymore? How cool would that be? And so we, here's the deal. How can we be examples? A couple of ways. One, I think we need to start with living and dying by the great commandment. Living and dying 
by the great commandment. There was a time in history, and, and it, I think it even happens today somewhat, um, where, his, where f- philosophers and rabbis would, would sit down and they would debate over which commandment was the greatest commandment, like which, which one has a little bit more weight and which one uh, has a little less weight. And they would have these conversations, these debates, all, kind, of like, kind of like barbershop talk almost. You know, they just kind of have these conversations and meet up together in, in the city and, and have these talks. And so they tried this. When Jesus came rolling through town, they tried this. Well, he, we perceive him to be a rabbi, a smart guy. Uh, let's ask him, what do you think the greatest commandment is, Jesus? And he answers them in Matthew 22. He says, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Living and dying by that. If we wake up in the morning, that's what we live and breathe, is the great commandment. And we would give our life to see that become a reality. In order for us to have utter devotion to God, I must center my life on who He is. Love God with all I've got. Everything else becomes secondary. Everything else. Center my life on that. And in the same breath, He says that I'm to love my neighbor as much as I love myself. That if I have my neighbor halves, if, if I receive, my neighbor receives. If I have something, I share. Love my neighbor as I love myself. When I'm sick, I go to the doctor. I, 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 I try to get well. If my neighbor is sick, I should do everything I can to make sure my neighbor is well. Whatever I would do for myself, do for my neighbor without reservation, regardless of what my neighbor looks like, regardless, even if my neighbor speaks different than me, looks different than me, or even believes different than me, love my neighbor as I love myself. There's a story we went through a couple of months back in John chapter 4. It was the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And many of you are familiar with the story. Uh, she shows up um, at the well And she's living this life of perpetual shame that she can't escape from. And so she has to to go fetch water at a different time of the day because of judgment and condemnation and gossip and and all of these other things where people were, were not forgiving, not merciful. And so what she doesn't know is she's headed to a divine appointment that that she has set with Jesus. Jesus is going to meet her in that moment. And and they start talking about high-level stuff. How's your kids? How's work? But Jesus quickly peels back the layers and gets to the root issue. And then we start talking about heart issues, my life issues. And she has an encounter with Jesus. She has a moment with Jesus. And at that moment, she leaves... (laughs) Her, own, her source of satisfaction, the water she came for, her source of life, she checks out, runs to town, say, hey, you got to come see this guy. I just had a moment with a guy. You got to come see this guy. I just had a moment. You got to come see this guy. Come meet this guy. That's what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourself. I have a moment with Jesus, and my, and my, my first response is, somebody's got to come meet this guy. Somebody's got to have this moment with this guy. And so when we step up to that call, when we love our neighbor as ourself, it would say many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. 
Many people had a moment with Jesus because of her moment with Jesus. She said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Doesn't matter about her moment. Doesn't matter about what she said or her engagement she had. I've met Jesus now. I've had my encounter with Christ now. My life is different now. My life has changed now. And so I'm going to leave from this place. And the love that was expressed to me, I'm going to go show it to my neighbor. The, the forgiveness and the mercy and the kindness that was shown to me in that moment, I'm going to share it with my neighbor. They need to come and, and meet this guy. We, we have to be willing to actively embrace and be inconvenienced by the idea of church diversity. See, that's our problem. One of our problems is that we don't want to be inconvenienced. It's real hard to try to cross cultural lines and try to understand someone else, understand where someone else comes from, the issues that they deal with, the problems that they face. It's, it's difficult to cross cultural lines to share with someone who, who might have more than me or who might seem to be getting along better than me, and, and I have to try to engage that. So it's from both ends. So why does it matter? Why am I here pleading with you to consider this and to figure out how to act this and live this? Why does it matter? It matters because it matters to God, because we are stewards of a great mystery. A great mystery. In Ephesians 3, it says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. If you're not a Jew in this room, you're a Gentile. Okay, so that's, you, you, the guy on the video kind of said that he broke it out into two classes. You're either Jew or you're either Gentile. And the Jews were God's chosen people. They were favored. And they, instead of using that as an as a act of compassion and a way to reach uh, people, they, they took it as privilege. And, and so they said, ooh, you Gentiles, we're Jewish, we're God's people. Um, and you guys are far off. You're, you're, you're no good. You're, you're going to never uh, own up to what Christ asks of you. And so understand that, that we fall into that category. And it says the mystery is that the Gentiles, us, many of us, Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We are afforded the same benefit, the same promise that the Jews were promised. That God's chosen people. We're now being grafted into that family. You know how that happened? You had no part in it. It was the mercy of God, the kindness of God that afforded you that opportunity. You did nothing to deserve that. And so why do we continually ask those who aren't good enough to get good enough? You can come and be in my circle if you clean up your act. I'll be friends with you if you, if you adhere to this, if you look like this, if you smell like this, if you talk like this. And that requires work, and we're just not interested in that. It's just easier for me to go find a circle of people who think like me, who look like me, who sound like me, who like the same things that I like. The local church is the hope of the world, and its future rests primarily in the hands of its leaders. Listen to me. The church is the hope of the world, and its future rests primarily in your hands, and in your hands, and in your hands, and in your hands. 
It's up to us. If, if the church doesn't take the step, our community, our leaders, our politicians, anybody else who we put in some kind of uh, influential position will not do it. It is the job of the church to do this. And so we have to work toward this. We have to actively pursue reconciliation. We have to actively pursue unity. Ephesians chapter 2, we read this earlier. For he himself is our peace. Christ is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh on the cross the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. To, to, to work toward reconciliation, the first thing we need to understand is that Christ is our peace. He is our source of peace. He's become our peace. And it's important for us to understand this because you look at the world, it's, it's right now, it's, I, I can tell you this, I don't know if it's because I'm paying attention more uh, or, or that it's actually something that's happening, but I believe that there's more tension now in the world than I've ever seen in my life more racial tension in the world today than I've, than I've ever experienced. Now, it might have been because my head was in the dirt. I don't know, but I'm noticing it now. I'm seeing a lot of it now. And so as we look around, we, one of the things that we have to be reminded of is that the church has a peace that is available to her that is not available to the world. That we, in Christ Jesus, there's peace that the world doesn't have. So, so you understand, that's how we work toward reconciliation. That's how we're the hope of the world because we have peace in Christ. And this peace comes through Christ. And there's two opportunities here. There's, there's what we receive from Christ is, is personal peace. Because of grace, through faith, believers have peace in God. They have peace with God. And, and this is the kind of peace that, that Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 3. He says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. So Paul's describing this kind of peace uh, that comes from Christ, and, and, it, and it literally means to be put together. Like, you have all of your faculties together. You have a peace of mind. Everything's working in, 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 in the way it's supposed to for you. And so you, you can kind of understand that I get a peace of mind when everything's kind of just clicking along the right way. And that's the kind of peace. He's not talking about the shalom peace, the perfect peace, because you know we don't experience that uh, as much as we would like to. Uh, he's talking about a kind of peace that just says, you're, you have all of your parts together, and all of your parts are working together, and they're kind of working in unison together. You have peace in Christ. Uh, an example of this um, just, a, just kind of a, a story. Uh, we, weren't, uh, we weren't in the community very long. Um, 
we met some kids across the street. Uh, there were three kids, uh, and they lived in a very abusive home uh, and not a lot of um, parental guidance. Um, and so uh, through the course of just getting to know them and, and meet them and spend time with them, uh, they, we became friends, good friends with them. And uh, there was one night where they, they frantically came over. And, I, and, I, and I'll just say this. Um, you may have not all experienced this. I know Ashley and I, we talk about this sometimes, that um, there are seasons or there's moments, and some of you, if you've experienced this, you'll know what I'm talking about, where you are being spiritually attacked. Like evil is attacking you spiritually. And, and before then, I don't know if I would have, you know, Leading up to these months and days, I don't know if I would have told you that, that I'd ever experienced anything like that, but I can just remember sitting in the, in the, in the house that night, and, and when all of this was going down, me and Ashley were just kind of looking at each other like, what's going on right now? Like, what's going on right now? Um, these kids came over. Um, their parents had left them uh, home that night. Uh, they were being uh, supervised by an aunt and an uncle. Um, who were, when they came over, it was because the aunt and uncle kept going around the back of the house and uh, doing drugs and not, you know, they were kind of getting high and the kids were getting scared. And so they came over. Um, and, and so they just spent the night with us that night. After, after the circumstance kind of unfolded and, and, and we kind of got through the night a little bit, they ended up spending the night with us. And I can remember before, the, before one of the, the young boys, it was, it was the, the middle child. He was, uh, uh, I don't know, probably nine, 10 years old. Um, I can remember him sitting in the kitchen talking to me and Ashley, and he just said, I just want to be a kid. Like, I just want, and this is a nine or ten year old boy saying this. He said, I just want to be a kid. I don't want to have to worry about all. Like, he's worried about his brother and worried about his sister and, and worried about his mom, and, and it's an abusive place where he comes from. His mom's getting uh, beat a lot, and, and his dad's, you know, and, and it was just a bad situation. And I can remember, man, it's just our hearts just broke, man. And what that kid was looking for was peace. He just needed some stuff to work right, man. He just needed his parts to be functioning properly. And now, now so here's the deal. Uh, we want our home and our community, we want it to be a place of peace. And we see that often. We see where, where we have company over and they just, they're over because it's peaceful. And they don't have to be stressed out about so many things and it's just everything's kind of working and clicking sometimes okay and sometimes not, but we try hard. And, and, and it's, we don't provide this peace. That, that's the one, this one thing I want, I want you to know. We don't, this peace isn't coming uh, from us. It says, for he himself is our peace. Our peace comes from Christ, and we want our neighbors to know the source of this peace. I want you to know that the only way that this is halfway functional at our house is because Jesus is our peace. And some days it may not look like that, but some days we hope it, hope it will. And so because of that, because of that personal peace that a believer would have, there automatically becomes communal peace, a, a corporate peace where we individually have this vertical peace with God. I have peace with God through faith in Jesus and the work that he's done. And that that the gospel demands this horizontal peace now. Because I have this vertical peace, this individual peace, there must be some communal peace, some corporate peace. People around me need to experience peace. And we as the church 
Sadly, we forfeited this. We continually forfeit this peace and we stand on the shoulders of the world and, and, and we ride whatever wave the world's riding and we get off of the shoulders of the world. We don't stand on the word of God and we stand on the shoulders of the world and we just kind of click along with it. And that's a passive way to put it, but I would say that the church has even at times given validation to segregation and separation. That we've championed the idea, that we've promoted the idea of separation and segregation. Do I need to take you back to the letter where eight, eight men of God leading the church wrote to a black man in jail because he's trying to fight for justice and say, sit down and be quiet and let things work out the way they're going to work out. So we champion this idea at times. And in history, we've done this. And so as Paul would agree, in Christ, we have this personal vertical peace that works itself out in horizontal communal peace. And so how does that happen? How do, how do I experience this vertical peace that will flesh itself out in communal corporate peace? Ephesians 2 answers it by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, hereby, thereby killing the hostility, bringing everyone together in one body, killing all the hostility that, that, that happens in that circle and, and making us one with God, reconciling us. And so we have peace through Jesus because of his work on the cross. That is the only source of peace. This is the only way we get put together. It's the only way we get all of our parts working together. That place where man was at his worst, but God was at his best, at the cross. That's where peace is found. And so we did nothing for, for this peace. That's what I want to make clear, that you and I, we don't get to go leave here today and try to drum up uh, some ways to, to, to experience this peace. It only comes through the work uh, on the cross that Jesus done for us. We can't do anything for it, uh, that he's obtained this for us by becoming our peace. He said, in my flesh, I'm tearing down the walls of hostility. I'm giving up my life so that there would be unity and that there would be reconciliation to God, that there would be one man, one body, one family. I'm going to do that. I'm going to usher that in. And true reconciliation only happens here. Here's the deal. Outside of the church, we work toward integration. Inside the church, we need to work toward family. Right? It needs to be more than just what it looks like on the surface, but dig deep down in. Can, I get, can, I, can, they become, can, can the people who look different than me and, and act different than me and sound different than me, than me can, they, can they become my family and my heart? Because that's going to be where we now put it on display for the world. This is what unity looks like in the midst of diversity. Here's what one family looks like. It's the church's privilege to bring that about. And so you, if you think, and if I think that I've experienced racial tension in my day, I would have been appalled, you would have been appalled at the, the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. It was much worse. And, and Paul would literally say here that the work of Jesus is demolishing these walls, these, this, this separation, this angst that you have toward one another. What Christ has done is torn down the barriers and the walls and hostility that belong there. He's, he's removed it all. And so what Paul is referring to 
And some of you were here when we kind of went through the demonstration of the temple and how it was set up with the, with the walls and the separations that, that there was the Holy of Holies. And then only the high priest could go there once a year to offer sacrifices, right? No one could go into the place of the high priest. The high priest couldn't go there. And on and on and on, men, Jewish men, Jewish women, Gentiles, on and on and on until those way over there were called the far off. That you were once far off. That you weren't even considered to come into the Gentile courts. That's how far off you were. And so when, when Paul says, in his flesh, he's tearing down the walls of hostility. He's saying, we're not separating anymore. We're tearing down all of these walls. And he even mentions it uh, in that verse where he says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So you see, he's saying, I want you to get a picture of the temple and how it's divided and how you and I, if we were to try to walk through the temple, we would quickly find out how not good enough we are and likely be stoned for crossing into the wrong sections. And so Paul is saying in, in, in his flesh, he's torn down all of these walls so that he might rebuild a new temple made of one body, of one people, of one family. And so you and I would have been aware of that. But Jesus took on this tension that we find, that we find in these walls of, of hostility and hate and he took all of that to the cross to bring it all down. So that's how, that's how we work toward it. That's how we bring, bring in peace. And so it is at the cross where Christ was subjected to our hostility so that he might put to death hostility. And it's, it's at the cross where Jesus was slain so that he might become the slayer of sin and death. It's at the cross where we all, Jew or Gentile, black or white, Asian or Hispanic, stand on level ground. We all have equal footing at the cross, every single one of us. It's that place where we're all equal because we're all sinners in need of a Savior, every single one of us. And so when we come to the cross, when we approach the cross, we see the hostility being put to death. We see the reconciliation made toward God and and. Our faith in that brings us into that one body, into that one family. And so how do we bring a fresh wind of reconciliation to those who might come to our home, those in our community, those at our jobs? We understand that without Christ, without Christ, those who would come into our homes, those whom we work with, those in our communities, are separated and cut off from God. That without Christ, they're without peace. And to under, like, I can love my neighbor as myself if I can get that. If I can believe that the only way that they're going to experience peace is in Christ. And if God has placed me in their lives, then, then may I be faithful to, to love them like Christ loves them. And I'll read this scripture, and then we're, we're going we're gonna to close with a scripture um, that I'll read over you. It says, but God, okay? So, so there's... There's, our sin has separated us from God, separated us from the family. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. I want to stop for just a second. The gospel, the gospel is that God loves us. And I'm in a circle of people right now that have a hard time believing that. Like, 
Well, no, the gospel is so that Jesus Christ could come and, and reconcile sinners to man so that God could get glory. And I just removed myself from that. I want you to understand something, that the gospel is about love. He's rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were shaking our fists at God, he loved us and made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up on, with him on the, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches, riches that we can't even fathom, we can't even put a measurement to, of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, in case you missed it last time, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This gift from God is not a result of our works. I have to continually remind myself of that because I want to jump in and I want to love someone like I love myself and when the results aren't where I want them, I just want to give up. As if I got the power to do anything or to change anybody. It's nothing that I can do. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which was prepared beforehand. So our call is just to be faithful and to walk and the works that he's prepared for us. And so if you would, just bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just want to read one last scripture over you as we kind of conclude our time together. If you have, tr- if you have trouble with what was... Um, said here today, or if you have trouble trying to see how you would fit in the plan of reconciliation and how you would be able to actively work toward unity. If you have trouble with that, you have a lot of trouble in heaven. I'm going to read to you what John saw in the book of Revelation. It says, After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne. And around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before them, before the throne, and worshiped God.